Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, aren't you blessed uh, by not only our time in worship, but also to be able to hear testimonies of people that have been transformed by Christ? Um, we got to hear a testimony from Mildred, but I have a question for you. When's the last time that you shared your story? What it is that God's done in your life, uh, how you came to see Christ, uh, what is the transformation that's happened in your life? When's the last time you shared your stories with the people around you? It's an important thing to do. Uh, we've been doing that. Uh, we have... Uh, our old-timers group on Wednesdays, uh, you don't get to come to that unless you're over 55, but I'm going to tell you this right now. It's like running a junior high group, okay? <laughs> Man, we are having so much fun in there with this whole crew, and, uh, and if you want to join us, it's, uh, it's Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, but we've been hearing stories week after week from folks. They've been sharing their story, and it is an awesome thing. We are walking with saints. That's what Scripture tells us, Right? Are you thankful for that? Okay, yeah, you can clap for that. We, uh, if you have been transformed by Christ, you're a saint. You have a story to tell, and you ought to tell it, and you shouldn't wait for a memorial service to have that story be told. Tell it today. And uh, those are exciting things. I, I just want to highlight two things before we uh, look at your notes. Uh, but in order for you to look at your notes, I want to make sure that you all have them. So that our notes for this series are going to be that little book of Acts that was at the back. So if you do not have one of those and you would like a set of notes, you would like to have uh, that little booklet, just raise your hand. There's some guys that are ready to give that to you. If you did not grab one of those on the way in and you'd like a set, just keep your hand up high and they'll make sure they get to you uh, with those. Um, but we're going to be using those. I'll explain that in just a second. Two things that I'm really thankful for. First, last week, Made to Minister uh, was an amazing success. And so if you were a part of, in fact, if you were a part of helping organize that, just raise your hand. If you were a part of serving in that or helping organize, raise your hand high. high for, okay, let's just give these people a round of applause. We're so thankful. I'm looking at... The servants, uh, I, I got a bunch of texts from pastors, and what you didn't know was how many congregations from our own city uh, also participated in that, but I got some texts from pastors, and, and they said things like this, I'm so thankful for the material. It was so profound to see how God's word is being used in counseling, and, and it gave them, it bolstered their ability, uh, their confidence to be able to use scripture in counseling in their everyday walk. But they said, uh, I saw these things, the truth of scripture, the way that it's being used, but here was the greatest gift to me. Your people ministered to us all around the building, everywhere we went, we ran into happy pe people, to blessed people, and they blessed us. So I just want to thank you for serving, and for all of you that joined, uh, this was across the board, the way that the congregation has been represented. Uh, you uh, exuded the Spirit of God, and I'm so thankful that uh, you as a church allowed us to be able to do a conference like that here, uh, and that you participated in that, and uh, I think it was an amazing success. We're looking forward to doing it year after year. Where's Carl? Aren't you? Yeah, yeah. He just woke up after a long winter's nap after that, uh, that thing. But uh, I do think it was a blessing. Second thing that I, I want you to be aware of is uh, this Wednesday, we're going to do the first in, 
in what we're going to do four different times throughout the course of the year. We'll let you know uh, about those as they, as they come. But this Wednesday, we're going to do a Hot Topics Night. Some of the things that are going on in our culture are happening. Some changes and impacts are happening at such a rapid pace that we don't have time just to start a uh, study in small groups or we can't address it all on Sunday morning because we're trying to stick with stuff that gets brought up as it comes up in Scripture. But we need to be able to have a dialogue. We need to be able to have some family time and we need to be able to interact uh, as a church over some of the things our culture is facing and that we as Christians are facing in our culture. And this Wednesday, we're going to be talking about God's view of sexuality, in particular in that realm of same-sex attraction. And so if you want to bring your questions this Wednesday, we're going to talk a little bit about what Scripture says. And I just want you to, to understand that there's, there hasn't been a, a discovery of some new chapter or some new verse in the Bible, all right, that will change the historic understanding of Scripture. But this is the one thing that is critical for me to relay to you as a pastor at this church. Jesus Christ stood for truth. Amen? He stood for truth, and yet he was known as a friend of sinners. Those two things must be hand in hand if you are going to follow the Jesus of the Bible. Now, I think that it has been said by many people, hey, I have the truth, but they have not been known as a friend of sinners. In fact, if you befriended or thought you want to extend the gospel to some groups, they would be angry that you were doing that. That has no place. Truth and grace is the way that we're supposed to operate, all right? Tell the truth in love. How do we do that as a church? And how do we have a proper understanding of the truth? Not our political view, not our extenuating uh, understanding of Scripture, so the Scripture added on with a bunch of other views that are unhealthy. How do we make sure we look at what God says and then we lift that up in a way that everyone around us says, hey, I may not fully agree, but I know they love me. Are you that person? We want to talk about both of those. We must maintain a historic biblical faith. Amen? This is what Scripture says, or else we're just hanging on to something random. It's going to slip through our fingers. We won't really know what it is we believe. We must hang on to that historical truth, but we must do it in a way that everyone that encounters us says, man, but I think they're for me, even if I don't agree with them. Let's lovingly present those things. Wednesday, we'll talk about how. Are we okay? Oh, man, at least. Amen goes there, okay? Are we doing all right? It's going to be a fun night, even though it's intense. The book of Acts. Uh, I want you to see uh, throughout this series that we are drawing our conclusions from the Scripture. So this has been the concern uh, for, for Carl, Matt, and I going all the way back. We understand that the people who are in this room today may not be here in five or ten years. There's various reasons for that. Um, we don't want the assumption to be in the room that people only leave a church because they died or there was some heresy, okay? That's not the case. Do you know that God may call you to another congregation, even in our city? He may call you to another work. He may call you to participate in other places. So as people come through here, if you stay here, for sure, this is our hope. But if you come through this place, we want it to be said that you learned uh, more profoundly how to approach the Word of God to feed your soul so you can respond to God and live differently. That is our prayer. We want you to be able to see the truth of God applied in your life. 
And what we thought was, during the course of this series, a great gift to you would be, instead of having published notes, we would just have the scripture... And then a place for you to write down thoughts that you have. We'll give some suggestions up here on the screen. But you'll be able to write out notes next to the scripture that's actually there. And our hope is, as we go through the book of Acts, and our intention is to go through it in big swaths, okay? So it's stories uh, that are put together where God is at work among people. So we need to look at the whole narrative. So big chunks of scripture, except for this morning where we're going to cover one verse. Apologies. I got caught up studying that, but uh, we're going to break out, okay, starting next week. But what we have there is the opportunity for you to circle things and see stuff that's in there and see the outline come right directly from Scripture. That is our hope. So with that said, I want you to turn in your notes slash Bibles to Acts. Uh, Also, this is uh, in the ESV. It was the version that we could get. It is still a faithful version for those of you who have grown up here and and, uh, know that we've used the New American Standard Update. That's not because it's God's version. It just felt like home to us, okay? Uh, There are good Bibles that are out there, and if uh, you have some concerns about that, I'd love to have a discussion with you, but this is going to be a study in the ESV because they afforded us the opportunity to have notes this way. Let's stand and read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Luke is continuing his record here to Theophilus, and he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Do you believe that's true? Yeah, he did those things. Let's Sit, you may be seated. Father, we ask that you would help us to be able to take a look at this passage and then this book through your eyes and heart, that we would understand what was your intention in writing it. Uh, What part of these stories uh, is normative? What part is to continue? And what part was for that transition? Most of all, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to what it is that you actually want to do in the life of every single believer. What does it mean to be on fire for you today, to know uh, that you are the one that is in control? You're the one that's filling our sails. You are the one that is driving us forward. Help us to be confident of that, Father, to be a church that is on fire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was writing, uh, not a commentary on the book of Acts, but just a series of sermons to encourage his people on that, said this in uh, his opening message. He says, do you even know this living God, this true God, this active God, this God who intervenes and comes to men? Have you ever met him in any shape or form, like Moses met him in a burning bush, or Jacob at Peniel, or Elijah met him on Mount Carmel? Have you ever felt the touch of God upon your soul? Are you aware that you've been dealt with, that God has entered into your life and has done something that you could not do? Do you know that you are what you are by the grace of God? Do you say, I can't explain. All I know is that God has done something to me in Christ. If you can say that, you're a Christian. But if all you have today is what you do and what you think, I'm afraid you're not a Christian. God's coming to you need not be in the rushing, mighty wind, 
But it is always the power of God. It is always the hand of God. It always brings the knowledge that God took pity on you and has come down in the person of his son to enter into your life, to save you, to set you free. Oh, that men and women might know the living God and his power unto salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his proclamation at the beginning of his series on Acts. We're going to go through the book of Acts, and I do pray that we'll see all of these amazing, true events, stories that happen as the Spirit of God moved into the lives of men and impelled them to go and preach the gospel. He did amazing things. Some stuff he did supernaturally at that time that were meant to to create a flourish of activity, but there are many things that also he does even today. I pray as we go through this, we'll be able to sort the difference between those, but I do think the one thing that he wants for every believer in every generation is he wants you to feel his touch, to be on fire for him. He wants you to sense his activity in your life. Now, even though we're going to go through these big narratives, we're just going to look at this first sentence uh, to help us also with outlining, but... Uh, to be able to look at a couple of key things that I think we miss when we read the book of Acts. And the first thing I would have you look at, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus is the focus. The book of Acts stays focused on Jesus. It doesn't start uh, in Luke with Jesus and then move on in the book of Acts to the church. He's still focused on Jesus. I think it's helpful if you look at the end of the book. You've got it there in your notes. Just flip to the very last chapter, chapter 28. In verse 17, we find Paul starting a Jewish Bible study at the end of all of the craziness that he's been experiencing. And it says, after three days, after some stuff that we'll study later, he called together the local elders, the leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And he begins to share his story. I didn't do anything wrong, but I want to tell you leaders some truth. Look at the last two verses. And he continued to live there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him. What was he doing? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book begins, I want to tell you about the continuing work of Jesus, and it wraps up at the end saying, and Paul continued to teach about the kingdom and about Jesus. This whole book is focused on Jesus. Now, I just want a a quick note about Theophilus and what we've taught about him, what I think is a, a strong possibility um, we're not uh, just kind of grabbing this out of thin air. There are a few good scholars uh, that also agree with uh, this understanding, but it's quite possible that Theophilus is an ex-high priest, uh, that he was part of that family group um, related to Caiaphas. Um, history tells us that it's quite possible that he was soft on crime when it came to Christianity, and therefore they tried to strike his name from the books. But here was this one that was an ex-high priest who was curious about what's going on in the church. Uh, I think there's some evidence there because of his use of the Septuagint in both Luke uh, and Acts. Uh, You have this version of the Old Testament that's been written into Greek. This was the work of uh, 70 scholars at that time that would have been related. They would have been overseen by the Sadducees. They were proud of this work and work being able to hand that out and help 
uh, with the religious activity of even Hellenistic Jews. Uh, and so they had this Septuagint um, made up, and he uses it all the way through. Uh, Luke and Paul and Timothy being born uh, to fathers that were not Jews. I think this would have been a, a good translation for them to be able to speak even their heart languages. They're talking about the Old Testament promises of Jesus. Something else that's intriguing that would have been useful to somebody who had been a member of the Sadducees and a high priest uh, is that all the way through Luke and Acts, it focuses on angels and the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. It focuses on the supernatural. Why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They only believed in religion. You do this, you do this, you do this, and then you die. They did not believe that the supernatural existed. Now, that's hard to believe from religious leaders, but I believe that if you go to many mainline places today, you will still find religious leaders who don't really believe in the supernatural. Focused on angels, the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection. Paul at one point says, I'm here because of the resurrection. He causes a riot between two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke is saying, not only are there angels, not only does the Spirit move, not only is the resurrection real, but the entire thing. He says, I can give you evidence of it. This happened, and these phenomena are right in your face. He says, Theophilus, you've got to do business with this. And finally, it ends as we said earlier with a Jewish Bible study. I believe that Luke is starting off at the beginning and he's at this Bible study and as they begin a Bible study, they're saying, well, how did all of this begin? Because they wanted to have a concrete linear um, statement. And so I think that Luke is just listening in the Bible study to the questions that are coming up. And he says, you want to know what? I went back and I made sure that I studied all of these things out. And I want you to have this sequential understanding. I've studied all of the testimonies, and I've put them in order for you in Luke and Acts right up until we started our Bible study. In fact, even as you read at the very end of the book of Acts, how the narrative kind of just dives off into this final understanding of what Paul was doing in Rome, it just kind of ends. The book just kind of goes, well, hey, and there we are today. I think he's speaking to Theophilus as if Theophilus has been a member of that group or aware of what's going on. He says, hey, I, I caught you up to where we're at. But the book isn't about Theophilus. The book isn't about the church. The book isn't about supernatural experiences. The book is about Jesus. And we lose sight of Jesus. A.W. Tozer made a famous statement that uh, I think is important, and, and it was followed by a response from C.S. Lewis, and I think the two of them together Help us remember what is important as we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may do or say, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to be a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always. The most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God.
C.S. Lewis heard that and was impacted by it, and he wanted to fine-tune one thing. He didn't want us just to think that it was all about what we think. He said, I read the other day that the fundamental thing about us is what we think about God. He says, by God himself, I think that's not all that there is. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is only important insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Why? Because it's written that someday we all shall stand before him. We'll appear before him. We'll be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise that some of us will actually survive that examination. Some of us will actually find approval. We'll actually please God. To please God, to be a a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son, it seems impossible. The weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but nonetheless, it is the truth. What you think about Jesus is critical, but what's even more profound is what he thinks about you. He saved you and calls you his children. How awesome is that? This is the record of people who not only delighted in Jesus, but people in whom Jesus delighted. And what happens in a group of people who have that kind of relationship? Now, I just want to emphasize one last thing. I made a mention of it, and I didn't want it to feel like it was maybe just a slap at mainline denominations But there's actually a uh, historical um, writer, Rodney Stark, who is on the liberal side. He's actually considered a a liberal historian, um, even by some of his own statements. But he did something a short while ago that even mainline authors, people from mainline uh, religions have said, yes, this is actually a true statement about our decline. And he said that there is a reason for the decline in the mainline Protestant churches. He gave seven reasons. I'll just give you part of number four and five. And he says, The wreckage of the former mainline denominations is strewn upon the shoal of a modernist theology. This theology presumed that advances in human knowledge has made its faith outmoded. Eventually, mainline theologians discarded nearly every doctrinal aspect of traditional Christianity. He says, when you take a look at a bunch of people and they took uh, the spiritual boat of Christianity and they wrecked it, he said, why did they wreck it? Because they were no longer looking at Jesus. They began to think about their thoughts, their ways, and they began to try to update God. Once you begin the process of updating God, you begin to leave his opinion and go to yours saying, well, we can clean you up a little bit here, God, because you sound a little rustic. And in their irritation over God, they left Jesus and they went for their own theology. The, The next statement he makes is, aware that most members that they had rejected their radical views, mainline clergy claim it is their right and their duty to instruct the faithful in a more sophisticated and enlightened religious and political way of thinking. Boy, this is really the sign of the death knell. Once we begin to have to clean up God and try to make it more sophisticated, now listen, you should not be against education, okay? You should be against education that removes from you the passion to live for Jesus. 
If you have education that removes your feet from being active and your love from taking place, then run from it. But education should be good. But they were trying to educate people away from Jesus and into a more settled and refined way of thinking, and they left the faith. It has wrecked their churches. When you focus on Jesus, your sails will be full. It says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The next word I want you to look at is that word began. Uh, It's important that he continues in the book of Acts saying Jesus began, and it's a word that implies continuation, and he's going to continue to be the main centerpiece of this story. He's not done. The book of Acts is very well stated to be the continuing work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the lives of men to the glory of God. It's the continuing work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the lives of men to the glory of God. There is possible that in the room there's actually some uh, little computers that are here made by Apple. Is that possible, right? Anybody seen those? Um, there was a, a while ago where Steve Jobs was a big deal and Wozniacki and these guys were co-creators, but it was as if Jobs was the sole uh, leader of that group. And there was a season where he was at the helm, he was driving the ship, he was making the decisions, he was choosing what things should rise and what things should be secondary, or what stuff, what projects they were supposed to work on. And so Apple becomes this great big deal. But now that he is gone, he is no longer at the ship. And when you begin to describe even the future of Apple, There may be some things that Steve Jobs started or even some ideas that he said, hey, I want you to be about this kind of thinking or I want these to be central to the way that we move forward. But Steve Jobs is still not making the decisions. He's not the one that is still there at the helm. Sometimes when we hear a description of what is going on in the church, we talk as if Jesus Christ started something great. He he goes to the cross, he wins our salvation, and now he dumped it off into the hands of men. And he had some good commandments, some good ideas about what we should be about, and he left it in our hands, and he's like, okay, let's see what happens. Right? Really good idea, but it would be great if the Creator was around to kind of help us now. Here's the story that we see here. He is still at work. He's still the one that should have his hand on the wheel. He's the one that's at the helm. If there's any forward momentum and anything that is majestic about the church at all, it's only when Christ is at the helm and the Spirit of God is filling the sails. If anybody's ever been uh, sailing, you know that uh, it takes a little while for for you to work through just uh, putting up the main sheet and then learning how to put up a jib. And eventually a real advanced class is when you put up a spinnaker, which is a great big full sheet that they fill with uh, wind, uh, and the boat can get whipping. And uh, I think that we have a video here of a couple of guys that actually um, have, were sailing with a full spinnaker. Look at these guys. With the spinnaker is that red one out in front. They have the main sheet is the one that's off to the left, and the little guy in the middle is the jib. Now look at that guy that just went under the water right there. He's called the crew. By the way, that's what we're called as the church, okay? He just got dipped by the guy at the helm. That is an amazing scene. So they're out in 35 mile an hour winds, okay? You don't just go from zero to that tomorrow. You got to learn how to do it. But here's the one thing that that guy that's crewing for him understands. He doesn't touch the rudder. 
Once you have that kind of wind, you have somebody that's at the rudder and he's the one that's calling out the directions. <clears throat> He'll say, prepare to come about. And that guy that's hiked out on the edge, who's got his toes probably on the edge of the boat to maintain the balance so that it will actually stay in a way that the wind won't just blow the boat over. They, they'll uh, have all of their momentum there. When he says, prepare to come about, he collapses his knees and he swings into the boat, unhooks himself, uh, hooks up on the other side. And as soon as the sails come full on the opposite side, he jumps back out on the other side of that boat just listening to the person who's at the helm and counterbalances once again as the sails fill up and they take off on another tact. If you have that spinnaker, you're running with the wind, so you're just hiking out trying to get the most speed that you can out of that boat, but there is somebody at the helm and the, the sails have to be full. Now, it is possible for you to learn how to sail, you know, in a, without any equipment like that, where you just hang on to the rudder and there's no wind. That's not the kind of sailing that inspires people to do it again, okay? If you've never lived your life where you need to make sure that somebody with experience is at the helm and the sails are full, you haven't lived the Christian life as God wants you to live it. He wants you to feel that full wind, the press of the Spirit of God impelling you to do what you are called to do and called to be and living a life that is so forward, that is so fulfilled that it takes Jesus at the helm in order to make sure that the boat goes where it's supposed to go. His intention is that you would just be the crew. The book of Acts, we see the church when it is just crewing for God as Christ is at the helm and the Spirit of God fills the sails and they take off. It's all that Jesus began. But it also says to do and to, de to teach. All that Jesus began to do. Word order is important in the original language. And I think there's a reason that do comes first. And I believe that's because what we do sets up our message. Just a short while ago, um, uh, Huffington Post in uh, 2016 did a, an article on a group of Paralympians. He, he, that quotes the fourth place finisher actually had a time that was a half a second faster than the gold medalist at Rio one month earlier. In the 1500 relays at the Paralympics, the fourth place finisher ran a faster time than the gold medalist at Rio in the regular Olympics, in the 1500s. This is shocking. A whole bunch of people commenting about it said, well, that must be because they can use blades or they have other technology. They had all of these reasons. I was actually intending originally this morning to just not tell you why, all right? To not give you any insight because I figured that some of you being closely related to those Apple machine holders might go and be curious on your own and want to look it up. But, but I felt it was important for you to see the kind of people that were running these races and the kind of impediments that they were up against. Here's a sprinter from a different class. The impediment that these sprinters and runners had had nothing to do with their legs. That was visual impairment. This is a completely blind sprinter. How is it that they are able to run the race, finish the race, and run it with such speed that world-class runners would be proud of their pace? How are they able to do that? In the T11 and the T12 races for the 1500 and in this uh, sprint that they did here, one of the most amazing things was they actually had a, a two-fold process that they would uh, work through. One was to have what they called a rabbit or somebody professionally who would go unnamed, who was not going to be declared, who would not get any recognition, that would run in advance of the, 
the sprinters or the runners for a period of time. They even do this in other professional races, but they did this for them to shout out, this is where you're supposed to go. Follow this voice or tell them about obstacles that might be on the track. But when they're completely blind, they actually ran in the sprints tethered to another sprinter. They would run tethered to a sighted individual who would guide them and launch along with them and they would run the race and that sighted individual tethered to them would help them run the race to their very best and they're setting records. Can you imagine that? This sprinter here, tethered to another individual, ends up meddling in the race and that other individual remains unnamed. This is a picture of what's going on in the book of Acts where we see amazing things happening in the church launching forward in the entire time. It's the comforter, the spirit of God who's run alongside as they do things that are amazing. And as we look back and say, wow, how awesome would that have been? There was a season where our church began to look around and we were hearing stories about transformed lives. We were hearing about people going from prison to salvation, from darkness to light, from brokenness to whole, or from an unsatisfied, lukewarm Christian life into vibrant and sustained, uh, faithful Christian living. We, we heard of those stories. We would tell those stories. We would rejoice over those stories. But our prayer as a leadership team was that we would begin to live those stories. And I believe by God's grace, we're seeing that in our church. Amen? We are seeing broken people made whole. We're seeing people coming out of prison, set free by Christ. We are seeing transformation. And it's an exciting thing. I don't think it's because of a program. I honestly believe that one of the key core commitments for us is that we had to get out of the way so that God would get the glory. We had to get out of the way and just focus on what is his best. When it says that Jesus began to do and teach certain things, it also speaks to fulfillment. What Jesus did fulfilled who he was. When Jesus did the things that he did, he did everything that scripture said the Messiah would do. So it says that all he began to do, well, what is he doing? He's doing what God does. He's doing what Scripture said the Messiah would do. He began to do things that were a fulfillment of who he was. Who he was on the inside came out in those actions, and they proved that he was the Messiah. When we see what the church does in the book of Acts, what the church does fulfilled who they are. What was inside them, what was transforming them, began to come out in their feet and their activities, and they, their activities were a fulfillment of who they are. But in the same way, what you do is a fulfillment of who you are. So when people look at your life, would they say that you are a vibrant Christian? Would they say that you've been transformed on the inside? Would they say that there's something about you working its way out impelling you from the inside that is uniquely Jesus. What you do is still a fulfillment of who you are. The real question is, are you a sold-out believer? The church in Acts gives us a picture of what it means to live a fully faithful life. And it's a beautiful picture. It's one we crave. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do, a fulfillment of who he is, and to teach. We only have time to make these statements, I believe they're true, and you can see these on your own. But if we have the works that we see, even in the book of Acts, but it, when we see them in our own lives, if you just have works without truth, you end up with rudderless activism. 
In fact, in many activist places, they say we don't want truth. We don't want all those things. We just want people to be acting out a certain way. We want them to live a certain way, and that will lead to change. But that is an axiom in itself. You end up with rudderless activism where you're just trying to do good for the self-appreciation that it brings. Works without truth is activism. Truth without works is dead intellectualism. It is actually possible for you to learn the truth of Christ and hear about Jesus and then get captivated with theological truths, but be so worried about uh, micro-polishing your theology that you remove yourself from the activity that proclaims that Christ is God, that, from the activity that proclaims that you've experienced change, from the kind of activity that proclaims grace. It's just dead intellectualism. If you have neither truth or works in your life, now it's just spiritualized hedonism. This is what we call cultural Christianity, where you're not actually doing anything that looks uniquely Christian, and you're not actually believing anything that looks uniquely Christian. In fact, that type of spirituality usually only lasts one generation. That's a death knell for continuation. When people just put their toe in the water and live a Laodicean life, you end up in that lukewarm existence, just finally saying, you know what? I don't even believe any of this. If you have neither truth nor works. But what scriptures highlight and what the book of Acts puts its finger on is that when you have the truth plus works in, in any body of believers, when you have truth plus works in an individual, you have settled, satisfied saints. These are people who are living fulfilled lives. These are people who are living expectant. These are people who are transformational when they rub shoulders with you. Truth and works. The, the question that I have for you as we begin this study in the book of Acts, as we begin to look at the church and what Christ continued to do in them to put the gospel on display. I have three questions. The first one is this. Are your eyes on Jesus? In your faith, are your eyes on Jesus or are your eyes on an experience? Are your eyes on a theological trend? Are your eyes on anything else as the centerpiece of your faith? Are your eyes on Jesus? That's where they should be. A second question I have, are, are your actions guided by God or by you? Many of us can look back and we say, well, I hope that God's in it. But you will know if your actions during the course of a week have been impelled because of faithfulness to God's prompting in your soul. You're reading the word of God. You say, this is what I'm supposed to be about. You're in concert with him as you are reading the scriptures and being transformed. Are you being guided by God or are you just living out you and putting a little dose, a salt shaker of Jesus on the side? And finally, as we begin this study, are you willing to lose your story in the midst of his? This whole thing is a bunch of people letting go of their story. They're not the hero of their story. Jesus is the hero of the story. They've entered into something much bigger. They said, I want to be a part of a story that's bigger than mine. It's not just about my fulfillment. It's about my service to a greater fulfillment. Are you willing to lose your story? That's what this book is about. It's about people who were transformed, and man, did it leave a mark. That's what we want. That's what we crave as believers I think that's what God wants us to get from this study. Let's pray. Father, as we go through this series, we do pray that you would grab our hearts, that we would see what happens in the book of Acts, and we would see those things 
that were for a season and those things that you intend for us still today. That we would be captured with what it could mean for us if we were to live lives that were fully available to you at all times. If we were to yield. Father, help us to be uh, part of a church that is on fire. Help us to be ministers of grace. Friends of the broken, but focused on your truth. Help us, Father, to live transformational lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.